Now, the point that's really important on the craft side of this is that um, we heard from a number of distillers that not only have the barrels um, doubled in price or sometimes tripled in price from a couple of years ago, on top of that, it's the access to it. While uh, you could easily put in a, an order for a dozen, uh, maybe two years ago, now I'm being told you're lucky to get two or three barrels at this increased cost. So are they available? Yes, if you wanna pay enormous rate, but for craft distillers, they don't have the economy of scale that the large producers, and on top of that, even if they could afford right now with their cash reserves to buy the barrels, they have nowhere to store them. Craft spirits mm. producers do not have the rickhouses or, or space within the distillery. Hey everybody, welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here. And so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of Decoding Cocktails. I am Chris LeBeau, podcast extraordinaire, at least according to my mother. Love you, Mom. Uh, my guest today is Margie Lehrman. She is the CEO of the American Craft Spirits Association, uh, a trade organization founded in 2013 and at large, the goal of ACSA is really to help foster an environment where craft spirits thrive. During this interview, Margie will elaborate on how ACSA even defines what a craft spirits producer is in their lens. One of the things that is interesting about the organization's journey that will come up uh, during it, our conversation, is the fact that they came into being after craft wine and beer making, and as a result, one can argue that spirits has a longer way to go, but they have at least at moments been able to learn from watching those other bodies navigate the political waters. So people like me are excited, obviously, about the rise of small producers, but, you know, in general, I have little understanding of or appreciation for all the hurdles they must navigate in order to get licensed in the first place and get their product on the shelves and more. I mean, this is obviously... Uh, a heavily regulated industry. In ACSA overall, their goal is to work to improve those rules so things are easier for companies like these. Uh, Margie will talk about some of their current policy priorities and obviously some of the longer lens things that they are ultimately thinking about. We're also going to cover Step Up, an internship program they've created for underserved and underrepresented individuals with training, encouragement, and opportunities to enter the craft spirits community through a comprehensive internship program. That's their formal write-up right there. Uh, Margie says she is as proud of this as anything she has done. There are many links in the show notes uh, if you want to dive deeper into their policy initiatives, acronyms, and more. You can find them online at americancraftspirits.org. There will, of course, be a link to that in the show notes. And on the Instagrams, if you prefer, at Craft Spirits US. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. Enjoy today's episode. Margie, first, thanks so much for taking time to chat today. I I love that we're able to have this conversation because I feel like for a lot of us, the legislation and the policy that happens behind the scene governs the system we operate in and, and allows us to enjoy or not enjoy, but we don't we don't see it. So I'm excited that we can talk about some of the things uh, that are operating behind the scene. Well, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity. I'm certainly passionate about speaking of my community of Crep Spirits producers. So I was curious as a place to just start in general, because uh, I've told my own story to people many times, but uh, I see that before, so before Craft Spirits, you were certainly doing uh, work to help a number of brands from a legal side. You have a, a legal background, but how did you first get into that? Because it seemed like early on in your career, you were kind of more like on, a, on the trial lawyer, trial law side of things. So did you just, it was time for a career change. How did you end up here in the first place? <laughs> Great question. Um so going back, you're absolutely right that I was with the trial lawyers. And actually, between undergrad and law school, I worked for the Foreign Policy Association in New York. So I, I had very early on in my career, uh, and even go back before that, I've always been involved, even as a child, in associations or communities, whether it was 4-H, whether it was Girl Scouts. Um, I've had it sort of my core being a part of a community where the missions um, drove and I guess ultimately formed who I am. So with an association background, I had practiced uh, in the area of employment law in the District of Columbia for a number of years before the trial lawyers actually had a position opening and I oversaw their national program of continuing legal education. I was with them for 16 years, um, loved the association community, but I'm also a mom and I'm very proud of that role. Had two daughters at that point and decided uh, I didn't want to ever look back in my career and say, what if? So I actually took a, a seven year hiatus and became the CEO of the Lehrman household where I uh, had both of my daughters matriculate through uh, middle school and high school, at the point they went to college, uh, Lehrman Beverage Law had an opening for a lawyer, and I interviewed with my husband, who said, yeah, we'll bring you on as an associate. That's how I got into um, the alcohol beverage sector. I hadn't uh, really sought it, but my husband has had a career in um, beverage alcohol uh, since he actually graduated from law school, so 30-plus years in, in this sector. Uh, I very much enjoyed the work. I was uh, a part of Lehrman Beverage Law that was an affiliate member of the American Craft Spirits Association. We attended ACSA's second convention where they announced from the podium they were looking for a new executive director. At that point, the organization was only two years old. My husband kind of looked at me and said, oh my gosh, that job would be perfect for you. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, let me introduce you to some people executive search committee. I was not seeking out a, a new position, but when I met the folks in interviewing and when I was offered the position, uh, not only was I honored by that uh, offer, I thought it was really something that perhaps I could lend my years of association management experience to bring the organization to the professional place I knew it could grow into. 
we're no longer an infant stage. We're no longer a toddler. We're, we're definitely now uh, a very respected trade group in, in the um, beverage sector. And I'm, I'm so proud of working with my volunteer community of committee members and an elected board who put so much into helping shape the industry that continues to grow with incredible potential. So first off, shout out to all the moms out there who step up for their kids or, or parents, I should say. Uh, shout out to Mary Lynn LeBeau for staying home with my brother and I for many years. Uh, so one of the things I'm excited to talk about in terms of you talking about the ascent and the growth of the organization is craft is a term that we are all now familiar with in terms of, and I love kind of you, you I've heard you paint the picture before uh, and with other people I've spoken with, you know, looking to craft beer and wine as kind of a a gateway for people that are out ahead of us. I'd love for you to talk about uh, what is, because I think maybe we could guess, but what exactly, how do we define a craft spirits producer so that people can try to get their hand head around like who that might be right there? Sure. And um, I really do appreciate this question. And I will say when I first joined the organization, which was back in 2015, there was a lots of discussion still, what is craft? And prior to my engagement with ACSA, of course, even in, in building the association, uh, certainly craft meant more than a marketing term. But in terms of how we define craft, it's defined by our membership. Because I am not going to say a distillery who produces uh, using as base spirits uh, bulk who then does mastery of the art and science with that bulk-based spirit coming in is no less craft than someone who is uh, craft made from scratch within the distillery. There's differing views. Should it just be um, sort of the, the grain to glass that we consider craft? I really leave that up as does my uh, in my particular trade group to the consumer. So for purposes of how we define craft, it's someone who has a valid DSP or distilled spirits uh, plant permit, if you will, produces fewer than 750,000 uh, proof gallons removed from bond. Um, no more than 50% of the DSP is owned directly or indirectly by a producer of distilled spirits who has much larger volume, actually 750 but also subscribes to the code of ethics. And this is something that clearly sets us apart in the definition because for our members, um, when they check that box that they adhere to it, what they're essentially telling you is what's in that bottle is actually what's in that bottle. Um, because there are some that, that might enter the market and um, pretend they're all that uh, when, there's nothing wrong with sourcing your base alcohol, but let us know that that gin or that vodka um, has those cool botanicals that you might be putting into it to make it what it is that you are actually selling to the consumer. You know, so despite the fact that maybe there are moments, I don't know, when you're like, oh, envious of where beer and wine are at, you know, I guess you on the other end have the benefit of Getting to uh, getting to watch them go first, and I remember I was listening to a conversation with um, Nicole Austin, who I believe is is or was on your board. Yeah, I think was. But anyways, yeah. Nicole saying at the outset, because I appreciated this, that 
because we can all have our, our opinions about what makes a good spirit, liqueur, whatever. She said it was, we decided to go less the route about quality and more about transparency to let the consumer make their own decision. Because I do think that is great. Where like, while I have my opinions, you get to decide what is best for you. And as long as you understand what's going on there, then I do think at times some of the distillers can be a little, they're, they're abiding by the terms. Sometimes I think like people still learn, learn about sourced whiskey or spirits and they go, oh, wait, they're not making the thing. Uh, but I do think there's a great point to the idea of the transparency of the thing as opposed to us having to be an arbiter of quality because that's just a giant gray line right there. It is. And to that point, one of the cool things about the craft industry is um, the innovation. And what I may find is really high quality and really speaks to my palate. Someone else may not have that same reaction. And I know that uh, TTB has certain specifics in terms of how some of these categories are defined. And there's some outliers and that for that very reason, that's why ACSA has created in our spirits competition, innovation awards. Because while they may not fit that model of TTB, they may be something absolutely delightful. And I had that experience in actually trying some different, uh, I'll take gin as an example. Um, when I first came into ACSA, um, our judges looked very different than they do now. Uh, what does that mean? It means that demographically, and I'm talking about all demographics, we are trying to mix up the panels where it's much more reflective of the consumers throughout the country, the world, that enjoy our spirits. Because what my intro was, I tried a gin that I thought was remarkable, and yet it didn't score very highly. And I realized, well, if you have four <laughs> middle to upper aged white males sitting sipping, their palate is going to be because the experience of life and what they're drinking and how they drink it, it's going to be di very different from me either as a stay-at-home mom at that point or from someone that's going out to a cocktail bar with my girlfriends wanting to celebrate or just have a drink together. So for that very reason, going back to um, to your point and to what Nicole said, 100%. I also think that um, you know when I'm teaching classes that vary by demographics, ethnic background, et cetera. If I'm working with a group from Southeast Asia or South Asia, uh, I know that I can bring a lot more bitter elements into the drinks program because that's more in their culinary background. And, and I've heard you say this before too, and I agree that the American palate has very much, along with food, beer, and wine, has opened up and is expanding, but still across ages and all these things, what, it, you know, a, a a, a gin that most bartenders uh, check for um, uh, for great, you know, martinis and whatever is Beefeater. And to me, it is just too much juniper. And again, it's all it's all relative at that point in time. So that's exactly. I, I, I I and I I love some of the lenses that's that, that uh, ACSA has taken in terms of making sure that we are who's in the room, depending on what we're doing, really helps shape the future of things. It does. And that's the other thing I, I that I so enjoy uh, in my position, because you mentioned beer and wine and sort of their evolution. Uh, ACSA, the craft spirits sector, has only begun in this evolution still. Many of the um, 
regulations and many of the rules for spirits were written around prohibition and they're still on the books. So I think our trade group has the ability to, to not just change and modernize, but to make the industry and what's accessible to consumers, um, what, what this century <laughs> demands and deserves and not just because so so often I will ask a regulator, I, I don't quite understand. Can you help me understand public policy reasons behind this? Well, that's just how it is. Great, I understand. But why is it just how it is? Wine's doing this, beer's doing this. Can you explain to me why we are so much different in this instance? If we're talking about public health and safety, totally get it. But if I share with you that there are ways to uh, make sure that public health and safety isn't compromised. Could you give me the answer then why this still makes sense? And more often than that, it, it's kind of a struggle like, oh, um, yeah, I get it. So I, I'd like to set because I, 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 I see exactly where you're going and that's where I would like to go. But one of the things that my understanding is, and while it helped is, especially during the early days of the pandemic, one, you know, this one way to form a cocktail business is apparently to have a pandemic and people want you to teach classes virtually online. Who knew? But I know that also while people went out and bought a lot of stuff and we can certainly question how healthy those early months were for people with their, their drinking habits, also a good public health conversation. But I know that you're in the store and you're kind of rushed and harried and whatever. And I know that a lot of people went for a lot of their, I heard from more than one craft distiller that Sure, it was a big time for booze, but a lot of times people are buying their Four Roses, their Tangerays, because I just got to get in and get out of this store. And so part of what ACSA's work is about is the idea that how do we level the playing field in a way where at least these little guys and gals can compete more fairly. So when it comes to, in whatever way you 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 know the stats, when it comes to the amount of spirits that are sold... What percentage of that roughly are owned by 5, 10, 20 companies? Any of those stats you kind of roughly know, just so people understand that despite the rise of craft, that the, the big guys own most of everything. Right. And uh, to your point, especially during the pandemic, um, people did have more disposable income because they're stuck at home and we weren't doing what we normally would do. So they weren't afraid to spend and spend on spirits. And there are many states modernized to the point where there could be alcohol delivered, right? Cocktails to go became a, a thing to keep the bars, restaurants perhaps afloat during a very difficult time. And you're right though, that they typically went to the brands that they already knew. Uh, so while we heard and the states and media reported back, well, yeah, but we understand that spirits are doing so great. Those top ones with name recognition, the brands that are kind of household names, you mentioned a couple. I'm going to throw in Tito's into that mix as well. Uh, they were the ones selling. Craft spirits producers, in contrast, be remiss if I didn't mention this, were the ones that were suddenly making hand sanitizer because they were uniquely qualified to help their communities, their states, their local postal service when there was such a severe shortage. So they were the ones who weren't necessarily selling. 
because they might not be in your local retail store that's opened. So unless somebody came into the distillery, they're probably not going to. Some benefited from cocktails to go at the distillery, but it was at the distillery. So um, it's a very strange time early in the pandemic. We know from the craft spirits market that about 1.7% um, of the total craft spirits producers are responsible for just about 56% of the overall cases sold. So it's a very low number with even in the craft spirits community who's considered large producers, but that's just like 1.7% um, is such a small figure, right? It's, I, I don't have the exact percentage of the top producers, but I will tell you that um, many consider Tito's craft, so I, I don't want to denigrate Tito's in any way, but you will not see craft spirits manufacturers on that, that list of top 10. Right. And Tito's, I mean, props to them for finding the middle ground in a world where the middle doesn't seem to exist anymore. It's wild. But yeah, I think they have very much crafted this uh, this rustic image. But I mean, they are just, I mean, Tito's is Kleenex now. It is crazy, crazy the jump they have made. And so, yeah, I think it's just to realize that some of these people in order, we love their stuff for them to have a better fighting chance. And so part of what made me I forget, thank you to the internet algorithms who are mostly spying on me. Um, I remember seeing uh, an ad or you know, just a suggested follow piece. The ACSA had posted about uh, an upcoming trip to DC. Yes. And, and so I know that this is where we can kind of open the door for this, but I saw that in particular, you know, because policy is gradual. So I think part of what we'll talk about at some point, like you were alluding to, is direct to consumer being able to go on the internet and ultimately buy stuff but you guys were kind of pushing four things so one for the ground game out there like the TTB regulates alcohol and spirits and if they're not funded properly can new distilleries get licenses get products um on the shelf uh I love the idea of the agritourism piece so you guys were kind of talking about this I think the best example of this is probably the bourbon trail, even though we also, you're a lot inside the distilleries, but these places are beginning to draw. Like we think about going to wine country too. Uh, a great question. And I would love to get into this is the white Oak resilience act because, you know, God love bourbon for its ascent, but it has very strict policies regarding trees. And that can lead to just all sorts of major problems for sustainability. And then finally, it seems like this is probably you guys beginning to chip away at direct to consumer. Um, but the USPS Equity Act, where right now, where state law permits, you can sometimes send alcohol via FedEx or UPS, et cetera. But the Postal Service apparently can't, which uh, is not, uh, is it makes access to shipping less equitable, perhaps one might say. So I can kind of turn you loose from here. I just kind of wanted to tee those up because uh, sure. they all seemed like great um, things to be focusing on right now. Well, thank you for that. And you're absolutely right, Chris. And actually, it was one week ago today at this very hour that we were sitting in a beautiful Senate uh, Senate room in Senate Russell, which is a Beaux-Arts building, one of the original Senate buildings. And so we sat there in this beautiful uh, ballroom. We had a Senator... Tim Kaine opened our meeting with a, a very warm welcome, um, uh, assuring us that in his wisdom that um, 
we probably weren't going to have a government shutdown uh, with a but a continued resolution. So uh, a little prescient there. But um, Senator Kane in at this exact hour one week ago, it was Senator uh, Representative Dan Newhouse who actually was one of the lead sponsors on a couple of the bills that you mentioned, um, sharing his wisdom. And then um, Representative McGarvey also came. So we sat with, uh, collectively, there were about 40 of us, and with the, the staff were about 50 of us ascending on Capitol Hill for the reasons that you mentioned. And um, in no particular order, I will take first uh, the TTB funding at 148.8 million. Uh, what's interesting about that is when we went into congressional offices and I we did well over um, 20 visits, different offices, um, we went in and um, in fact, not one office, but almost every office would say, wait a second, you're, you're advocating right now for us to fund the agency that regulates you? This is kind of opposite of what we normally hear. We normally hear complaints. And in fact, you are singing the praises of TTB, which is true because in recent years, TTB vastly reduced the processing time on opening for that distilled spirits um, permit, the plant permit, has substantially reduced colas. I mean, colas online where there's fewer um, instances where they're not improving it because you've done it right, because there's also been education which takes people and resources on terms of their website, formula approval, again, vastly, and also the accessibility to TTB staff. I will, again, give a shout out to TTB because they brought just under 10 of their senior level executive staff to our meeting and take questions from distillers who might want to uh, address where are you on American single malt? Um, where are you on regulations on forms? Um, can you help us out letting us know when you're gonna change the standards of fill on particularly uh, RTDs that have to uh, put four cans together at a thousand milliliters because they don't have a 250 milliliter for spirits at this point, unlike wine. So those are the kinds of things we are addressing with TTB. And I think frankly, the congressional offices we were with were really, I think, thankful that here we are saying, yeah, we want an agency that works well. One of the issues with TTB funding, because you wouldn't think we'd have to argue this, is that TTB received a boost in funding when it took over the import piece under the Craft Beverage uh, Taxation Act, which also gives importers the reduced fee previously had been with customs and TTB pulled it after the uh, the tax law. So um, I, I will say that uh, that was kind of an easier one once they understood the value of having an agency um, support your efforts to be able to be compliant and put product on the market in uh, within the regulatory framework that exists. And I, I'll say when I first saw the, the headline about funding for the TTB, my first thought was the same thing. I'm like, wow, like they want to bump up the regulation, but it's like, oh, but for a regulated product, if the timeline or the confusion, the resources available for how to get something to market, and I know you guys have your how to start a distillery guide too, but if if we want to start one and it's harder than it should be, like we're not doing small business any favors or like they have a whiskey or a gin that they can't get on the market because the TTB is like waterlogged. 
you know, these are the things that make sense in terms of helping speed up timeline for your members. Of course. And what we found, do you recall a few years ago when the government actually shut down? Yes. They weren't able to. So it may, two or three days may not seem like a big deal to the, to the real world. Interestingly, TTB employees are not deemed essential, meaning they didn't have to work, which means for however long the government was shut down, and by the way, they're not even allowed to go into their systems and check emails. So when the government shut, no access to, even if they want to help, they can't. It happened at a time where, uh, you know, OMD, lots of new products get put on the marketplace for the holidays. They lost that opportunity to put new products on the marketplace. And that hurt. It hurt lots. Um, So whenever TTB is not functioning as it should be, it has a direct impact on small businesses. And unlike larger brands that don't put as many products out, I'm thinking of a distillery in Pittsburgh that you may know. One of the things that they do uh, exceedingly well is put lots of new products into the marketplace. They're not afraid to innovate. Uh, You take away that ability to do so you're going to impact bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense. And yeah, I think this is, I like that on your website, you also have your alumni members too, who have, uh, you know, graduated above, above the category size. So I loved what you said earlier in terms of uh, no one can really, when you ask, why can I ship, you know, you're at a winery and you're like, oh my God, this wine's amazing. Uh, can I join your wine club? You know, you get home, you're like, oh wait, no, I, I forgot to join the wine club. I want to. Can I take some home? Can do that with with your with your wine, but in terms of hard alcohol, you know, it seems like the good reason is precedence and the fact that you that until now, you know, for many years now, but you that the spirits didn't have a lobbying organization to say, okay, I guess we understood where this legislation came from during prohibition, but like we don't this doesn't serve us anymore. And so, so it seems like the first piece of this is again, how do we open up the door a little bit more with, for the, with the USPS being able to carry alcohol uh, in states that permit it. But in the long run, what we really don't have is a good example other than protecting interests that stand to profit from this uh, or just uh, a lack of initiative to open it up. Or you said people are afraid that like, oh, what if miners get their hands on this? Well, one, I loved that you said, it's like, well, a lot of miners, even if they are, there are checks you can put in place, but a lot of them aren't trying to buy a $65 bottle of craft gin, you know, so. <laughs> Absolutely. And if they are, they must have been raised in a, in a different household. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, so we were on the Hill and it, you're absolutely right. It's called the United States um, USPS Shipping Equity Act. And- the reasons that you mentioned are valid, and it's for those um, who are able to ship alcohol in states that allow DTC, but it, it's more than that. And let me share the more than that. Uh, I created a product and I want to get my sample to a wholesaler to see if the wholesaler wants to pick it up in their portfolio. I can't get it to a wholesaler if I don't have a contract with FedEx or United States Postal or UPS, uh, I have to drive my nearest UPS store is an hour away. Fewer than 12 employees on average in craft distilleries, which means you just took two hours of my time to send a sample 
to a wholesaler to see if they even want to pick it up. Well, across a, a year, that time adds up. It's kind of instead of what am I doing? Wholesalers want you to build your brand, to, to wear out your souls. You just caused me how many hours that I don't have the ability to do that. It's also journalists, media, cocktail experts that may want to go to their bar manager and say, hey, this is a really good product. We need to bring it. Try it. How do you get that to them? Yes. Uh, there are over 32,000 United States Postal Service entities in the U.S. Contrast and compare that to FedEx, I think has 3,500 offices. UPS has about 5,000 something. It's vastly different. So just in terms of a common sense solution to a, a problem, and by the way, uh, I'll give you an example also how some of this doesn't make sense. FedEx has a contract with certain distillers. In terms of that contract, you can't ship to homes where it's not allowed in the state. That makes sense. What if during COVID, your media operate from their home and are no longer going in their offices? And you send it to the media because you told them you'd send them a sample. FedEx goes to an address, finds out at home, kills your contract. Right. Where's your availability then? So going back to the United States Postal Service, besides all that, um, we all know it's in the media. The USPS is losing money. Why cannot the government have benefit from an income stream going into an, an entity that is suffering uh, when we allow FedEx and UPS? So if they can do it, and there are issues with it, why not allow our own U.S. government agency the ability to benefit from that income stream? So for us, it's a win-win. The Postal Service unions want it. We know how to do it safely. We know how to do age verification. And on top of that, if this legislation, not if, when the legislation passes, it's been around for a while, but it hasn't been given the kind of attention that we are um, elevating it to, um, the reality is that they have two years to draft the regulations that support the law. Mm -hmm. So there will be additional time to figure out some of these items. Yeah. And, and at the macro concern level of underage drinking, the primary thing is, is like when you have wine delivered right now, you know, whether it's to your address or to my friend at his UPS shipping box, like they verify, like it's like, you cannot leave it on your doorstep and I think it's such an intuitive thing, but to talk it through just yesterday, uh, I'd interviewed someone before and they had offered to send me some product. And so this, that, that email came through yesterday and they asked about other people in my market. And I was like, I'm happy to hand it off to people. I know who I would love your product, but being in Missouri and you're in New York, you know, right now, even if they wanted your product, uh, their ability to source that, to put on their shelf would be very tricky and very, yeah, yeah. So I think it's just this thing where it just makes sense over time. And so I appreciate you guys kind of pounding the pavement on that one from a, a policy perspective, because it just, it does not make sense other than maybe for some reason, hard alcohol is, is, is more bad than the rest of alcohol. And, and like, that's just, it's just not, it doesn't hold water. Funny you should raise that, Chris, because I, I think um, you mentioned a point that absolutely we should, um, shine the spotlight on. People wonder why trade groups exist. 
they exist for the very reason why you said wine and beer. I was actually on a panel and um, I won't say what, what state I was in, but I was on a panel and um, I just posited, I feel um, like Cinderella coming on with my stepsisters always being disadvantaged where there are advantages. And I, I just said, and we do believe alcohol is alcohol. When you look at the percentages, alcohol is alcohol. And I said, why is that? And one of the panelists looked to the audience and the, the comptroller was there and said, hey, please stand up and say how much we get from spirits. So once that amount was thrown out, he looked at me and he said, the reason why spirits is treated differently is wine wined first. Yep. And it struck me that the importance of having an organized group around those in your community is so important because more often than not, it is educating those we elect on how the real world works. And so many of the offices that we visited last week had no idea of the complicated regulatory structure these small business manufacturers face at every level, not just at the federal level, but at the state level as well. And in the case of the uh, Shipping Equity Act, it doesn't preempt state law. So as you've mentioned, it, it's not gonna force a state to take alcohol. If in fact, direct -to consumer alcohol is not allowed in that state, it simply makes it easier for those who have these small businesses to operate where one can do that. I mentioned the media, I mentioned samples. Uh, another area I didn't mention, which is one of the focuses of ACSA, it's one of our pillars in our strategic plan is to open up market channel access. One of the ways you do that is to have your spirits win an award in a spirits competition. You take best of category, best of show, best of innovation, that elevates your brand suddenly makes it more attractive perhaps to wholesalers, not just in your state, but if you're in wanting to expand into other states. If you can't get your spirits to a spirits competition, again, you're, you're denied potential access. So it, it's, it's somewhat complicated, but at the end of the day, I think we've come up with some reasonable solutions. And I have certainly heard tales, and I've also heard this in the food world too. And I can appreciate that at customs at certain levels, you, maybe there are certain things you need to make sure don't end across certain borders. But yeah, I think it's, you know, spirits producers telling you, you wouldn't believe what I had to do to get this product here. And, and I think in general, in our life, you know, for things like supply chain and fulfillment and production, we walk into the liquor store and it's just magic. There it is. And like the number of steps, I can't even think of the book, but there's a book, this author, A.J. Abrams, he has a really good cup of coffee and he wants to thank the person that made the coffee for him. And then he goes, well, if I'm going to thank the person that made the coffee, I should thank the person that got the coffee here. And it sends him on this like, like multi-year pilgrimage to like all the, all the, all the thanks required to like ultimately give him that. And this is what your people face from grain to glass, so to speak. Yes, 100%. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, like I've, I've certainly had this conversation and I don't know if there's a, this is ever part of a broader conversation, but I'm curious like in the, in the bourbon world to the White Oak Resilience Act, 
you know, part of it is, and I, I just finished reading a book called A Sense of Place by Dave Broom about Scotland's whiskey culture. It's an incredible book, but they talk about some of the initiatives to restore woodlands and and peat and other things in Scottish culture to make sure that it can be there. Um, but yeah, one of the taxing parts about bourbon is that we have to cut down a new tree every time we want to make more of this. So one, the White Oak Resilience Act is certainly about uh, plantings and making sure that we have a future of trees. I'd be interested to know as well, Margie, if there's any conversation ever about loosening uh, the regulations. Have you ever heard people talk about like, you know, maybe we should like broaden this category so it's not just white oak. Dare I even say that? Um, well, and let's think even more broadly. Um, we're talking about uh, new white oak, right? Um, I don't think it says that the whole barrel must be new. It says new chard. So we're talking specifically regarding bourbon, straight, right, rye. Th those require it. Um, here's the thing. I think we can look at that and perhaps maybe look at the definition of how it is. Um, you just said, you know, does it have to be white oak? Um, people will allow spirits to rest in all kinds of things. But I think the purists will maintain that you might have the best flavor coming from that because the white oak is is beautiful with the char to bring out, you know, the, the different flavor profiles within. So I would leave that to the distillers. But what I know, and it was a, a beautiful education, is that we're about 40 years behind where we should be right now with the number of forests to grow the white oak that we need. What I also found out is that the majority of white oak actually is on not um, it is on private land, which means that that homeowner can do whatever they want with it. We heard a story where I don't know how many acres were cleared. That homeowner had no idea how valuable that white oak was. I, I think it was ultimately mulched, like logged, mulched. So there you were taking, I, I don't know how many potential cooperages. Here's the other thing. White oak is one of the materials that are used for flooring in America. So it's not just about going to barrels. So the 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 thought behind both the White Oak Caucus, it's actually a caucus within Congress, in addition to this particular act, is coordination, collaboration, education. It's not costing the government any money to pass this. It's really about taking the different also agencies that um, the Conservancy talking with the US Forest Service to make sure that there's collaboration in understanding the need and also um, on the private part of it, educating those who have these trees on their land um, in addition to new planting. So when I talk about 40 years behind, it's to make sure that we have the number of Cooperages who have access to the trees to make the barrels we need. Now, the point that's really important on the craft side of this is that um, we heard from a number of distillers that not only have the barrels um, doubled in price or sometimes tripled in price from a couple years ago, on top of that, it's the access to it. Well, uh, you could easily put in a, an order for 
dozen, uh, maybe two years ago. Now I'm being told you're lucky to get two or three barrels at this increased cost. So are they available? Yes, if you wanna pay enormous rate, but for craft distillers, they don't have the economy of scale that the large producers, and on top of that, even if they could afford right now with their cash reserves to buy the barrels, they have nowhere to store them. Craft spirits mm. producers do not have the rick houses or, or space within the distillery. So it complicates it. Um, but for categories that require storage and barrels to rest, it makes it that much more difficult to be innovative because of it. you just don't have access to the receptacle that you need to create that product. Yeah, and I, one of my hopes, you know, something you alluded to as well is how do we, again, speaking of other terms that have, have adopted the Kleenex moniker, you know, of bourbon, you know, but to look at other American whiskey categories and other just American whiskeys where we can be more creative with our grains, our barrels, et cetera. Um, but yeah, to all the bourbon lovers out there listening, uh, you want to get on this uh, White Oak Resilience Act unless you want to pay even more for your bourbon, because I know you're paying a lot more already. So Right. And that that's the unfortunate part, Chris. If our small craft manufacturers are paying these enormous rates, if you look at their bottom line, um, many craft distillers don't operate in the black uh, for five years or more. They are not cutting themselves a check. They're paying their employees, but they're eking by. This is not an industry uh, where you think, well, you may think you're going <laughs> to make the big bucks. Some do, I don't wanna discount that, but the majority of craft distillers are local small businesses trying to be a part of their community, offering an experience with high quality product to share. Yeah, and maybe that also points us to your final, the final thing as well. And I know we wanna, we'll talk about step up before we sure. wrap things up too, but, uh, so to the Agritourism Act, obviously part of what we are doing in this regard is we're pointing people to these these places and it brings money into those communities, but also better shows off the work that they're doing in the first place too. Yes. And the interesting thing is the under the USDA, there's been a market access program that takes uh, producers to foreign countries to promote products. We don't have that exact thing for domestic, and why not? The distillery trails are done at a state or local level. There's no reason why USDA and an uh, agrotourism office within can't do a better job of helping to promote the spirits industry within the United States itself. As a quick aside for you, and I could, I'll send this to you afterwards, I met a guy who works for the travel company, and I'm never... Whenever I see this name, I'm always like, so, so four doors or, or four doors. I can't think of there's a travel. They, I met one of their writers who was apparently trying to like document stuff for a travel book. And yeah, it's like, this is the thing that people need more. It's like the wine trail, you know, whatever, Northern California and Bourbon County or the Bourbon Trail are populated because they're marketed well and people know about them. And to talk about other conglomerations of these things can help create other miniature versions of this over time. Yes, and Americans are back to wanting to travel. And I always go back to distilleries as being an experience, like you experience the brand. It's not just that you consume it and then you, like there's something about that point in time inside the distillery um, 
looking perhaps out on the farmland that grew what you are now consuming. I found out um, in speaking with uh, Blom Brothers, which they're located in Galena, Illinois, that their convention and visitor bureau brings in over a million tourists to that town a year. Well, guess what? Their distillery is fortunate enough to be on that list that the CVB pushes people to visit when they, the government could play a similar role in making sure people are aware of what is out there, particularly by way. And by the way, this is one that is not limited to distilleries. It would be beer, wine, spirits, cider, meteries. So just understanding what this particular sector could offer. Yeah, and to understand that we are, you know, again, food and beer and wine to those examples, you know, are however many years ahead of distilled products, but we're used to the idea of whether or not people travel directly for it, and many do. People go to New York or Paris or wherever they go in part with like, I'm going to eat at these places. And to know that we have the appetite now, particularly people are chasing down cocktail bars, but also brands they love and making yes. that easy, making that easier for people to identify and build a trip around that is a, is, is a win. And uh, yeah, to the shipping thing, I actually met a couple the other day, very impressive collection at home. They, when they came back from Australia, they brought 16 bottles in their uh, luggage, which I was like, that is gotta be a record almost. So. <laughs> so yeah, on that point, it's kind of an aside, but it's relevant. Um, ACSA had its annual convention in Portland, Oregon. I took a few days after to go to the Pinot Noir and, and experience that. I was absolutely flabbergasted when I thought, I, I can't fit this all in my luggage. Um, the winery itself said, which airlines are you flying? And I said, Alaskan Air. And they said, oh, they'll fly you a case home for free. It won't be as a part of your paid luggage. I said, wait, time out. Are you telling me we have an airline in the United States that will, and sure enough, and they even helped me package it so it wouldn't break. And I'm thinking, here's an example, wine being treated differently than than beer or spirit, 100%. Wow. I was thrilled because I got a case of wine home at no additional cost for another piece of luggage. But nonetheless, it just shows you that things can be done. There's no real reason why it can't. Um, and wouldn't that be so cool for a distillery trail to maybe have a relationship with one of our airlines that would offer that same kind of service. Yeah, and a great anecdote for future legislation or, or you know, efforts, right? That That's cool. Um... <laughs> so for any listener who doesn't know, Alaskan Airlines has this wonderful deal. That's it. Our, everybody's new favorite airline. Um, one of the other things you talked about earlier was the idea that your judging panels look different now than they did when you joined. And that's in part like based on taste and all these things. So again, another priority that is front and center today is the conversation about, I always remember my friend Wade saying, uh, he's a uh, African-American architect. And he said, when I would go to like meet, you know, meet everybody's parents day, kids would go, oh, I, I just never saw an African-American architect before. Maybe I would want to do that. So anyways, uh, you guys kind of took your initiative to create the step up foundation, which I originally heard about from uh, Molly Troop up at uh, Freeland Distillers. And um, so this was all about, again, how do we give people access to mentorship and work? So tell us a little bit about Step Up. I would love to, because I am as proud as can be of pretty much anything I've done in my life thus far. 
Um, and I just want to lay sort of a foundation. Um, Step Up stands for Spirits Training Entrepreneurship Program for Underrepresented Professionals. And how it was born is that uh, Chris Montana, who is African-American, uh, served on the ACSA board and shared at a board meeting. I don't even think it was an agenda item, um, but just shared when he first came to ACSA, which would have been in 2016, Palmer House Hilton, our convention in snowy March, he walked into the ballroom and looked around and there was no one like him. And he remember feeling, wow, um, here I am. <laughs> uh, he raised that maybe ACSA, the board, um, might want to just consider how we make it more embracing of people who didn't look like perhaps the rest of us sitting around that table. So that was back in 2016. Um, fast forward, Chris Montana was absolutely impacted by uh, the George Floyd event. His distillery, Du Nord, is in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, got, got uh, destroyed because the thankfully the the sprinklers worked but but dumped on his distillery an enormous amount of water which took out everything but was a part of um after that his distillery itself was converted more to a um a hub for the community in downtown minnesota who no longer had access to toilet paper formula so he turned it into kind of a marketplace because he was very near the epicenter of where George Floyd was killed in that whole precinct. So what that did for everyone on the board is, although we've been discussing it, not quite knowing what to do, we really dug into this, made it one of the pillars of our strategic plan and what was born was the step-up program. The reason why it took us so long is we knew that we wanted to do more than just check a box to say, hey, we have a DEI initiative. So in working together with some incredibly bright folks on the Step Up Board of Directors, in addition to the ACSA Board, Step Up was created um, to bring into our midst um, either underrepresented, underserved, and we did not defy that just like craft because we wanted to be able to be inclusive of folks who had no path to entry to the distilled spirits community. And what we've done is we've built a hands-on training program where we, through application process and a selection committee, look at those who have let us know that they wanna be a part of the program. It includes a personal essay, it includes a resume, includes an interview, um, CV and your statement, what you think you could bring back to the industry. So when these internships are awarded, it is a big deal because they will have been vetted by people within the industry. And then what happens is selection committee kicks up the five top um, interns and it's ultimately the board of directors that selects. But when I say hands-on training, it's everything from front of the house, back of the house, operations, uh, TTB compliance, you will be touching finance, every segment of what it takes to own, operate um, craft distillery. Uh, we work with uh, RNDC has been a wonderful partner. So you also have the wholesale tier angle and the program has been 
supported primarily through a generous donation from Diageo to begin with, but there's also additional sponsors who have put in what they can. Uh, Beam Centauri, um, Smooth Ambler was one of the founding ones, um, Leopold Brothers. So we've had great support. And then there's folks like Catoctin Creek or distilleries, um, Westward Whiskey that have done cocktail programs where the donation proceeds from that goes to step up. So it's a program that can um, the industry can be proud of. So if it's not like accepting an intern at your distillery, which I didn't mention that, that's also by application where distilleries can volunteer their distillery to either be a host distillery, a sort of a visiting distillery to, has a shorter duration of time. And uh, the other thing that makes this program unique to primary things is when I say we, we did the work, we also hired an instructional designer of educational curriculum, working with distillers in a, a kind of um, curriculum committee to put together the most comprehensive, uh, in some ways even more so than Distillery 101, uh, but a comprehensive manual for both the intern as well as the distillery that takes the intern on. Interns pay nothing. Uh, we pay for the uh, transportation, lodging, and travel. Distilleries pay nothing. We didn't want an impediment from a smaller distillery to say, oh, I can't afford to take an intern because it's really about time and commitment. And then the other program uh, piece that makes it, again, so unique is we also realize, you know, Chris, I'm looking at you, you're articulate, you're smart, you're certainly well-versed, you've done your homework before this conversation. None of everyone, I, I, I'm going to guess, had had the kind of support you might have had in your upbringing and I had in mine that gives me the confidence to do what we do. And what we realized is even if someone is brilliant, if you haven't been given the foundational tools of confidence and believing in yourself or alternatively knowing how you might communicate, uh, a mentor could come into play. So it's not about how you succeed um, doing the technical skills of the job, but it's more, I'm going to call them the softer skills in life that we benefit from in order to succeed in whatever career. And so we actually, again, application process, hand select the mentor that will be with the intern through not only the life of the internship, but hopefully in, in years to come. And I know um, this past year, we had a, a mentor from university city setting, PhD um, professor, uh, who's in the distillation fermentation chemistry area, who was assigned and said, look, this has been the most beneficial thing I've ever done. It was such a joy and privilege for me to be a mentor, and this will be a lifelong, not just your internship. And that's what we really hope to gain from this too. So infinitely proud. Um, we will be meeting actually this coming Friday to select the next round for 2024 interns. That application process uh, went over several months. We had incredibly, incredibly uh, gifted people wanting to come in with almost all of them saying the same thing. We want in the industry. We have no idea the path to entry, how you get there. And that's what I'm proud of that we have given these folks a path. Mm-hmm. So first, yeah, I remember I went to my first Tales of the Cocktail in 2022, and I remember being at a Deuce Cognac event, 
and a guy who'd been coming for many years in tales is obviously pretty big scale, but African-American gentleman who looks at me and says, this is the first year I've ever feel like I've seen a great representation of people who look like me and also just don't look like, you know, who aren't, you know, who have, who have a d deeper um, melanin counts in their skin, if I may. And so I think uh, that it, it is certainly a, that there's an appetite for this. And I love also, because this certainly exists in the world. I love that you took the time to create that curriculum because someone can be genuinely interested to help, but suddenly the intern is standing in front of you and what do I do now? Or just the things we've all been in the meeting or the thing like, Oh, why didn't I say that thing? But with the right. curriculum, you give somebody the prompt and they're like, Oh, I know how to, I know how to run with this right here. So we gave both the intern as well as the distillery a paradigm, a map on how it can work with their own ethos being placed on top of that map so that they understand. And that's why also the beauty of this program, they don't stay at one distillery because not always one size fits all. So we tried to show the intern a large distillery, a small distillery, kind of one that only does DSS specialty spirits. Uh, we try to make sure that they touch on um, each category because they may not want to produce gin. They may want to do a vodka or um, maybe a bourbon, or, or maybe they just want to stick to liqueurs. That's great too, as long as we've given them that chance. And then the one thing I didn't mention is that um, <clears throat> we also want people to come in with a passion. They don't necessarily have to be in industry at all. Uh, our very first intern came from a fashion house in New York City. She had no, no uh, spirits experience other than she had joined a, a whiskey club and knew that she liked whiskey. And in her case, she was a tea sommelier. I didn't even know there was such a thing, but had a certificate as a tea sommelier out of Canada. And her, her own palate was so good that she was such a natural and now is employed gainfully. And frankly, at this point, uh, we've only had four interns go through our graduation ceremony for this last class is until February. But right now, three of the four are gainfully employed at distillers. So we, and again, because we haven't even concluded the um, internship this year for real, we expect that by graduation ceremony, we'll have uh, all four gainfully employed. Well, that, so one, that's wonderful. And I, I do love also, you talked about the, the comprehensive nature of things, because I've talked about this with a friend of mine who's a restaurateur, and he's like, you know, yes, we know the stats, right? They're bad. But how much of it is because the concept isn't good, but how much is it that they haven't thought about it holistically enough in terms of like pricing, position, and all these things? And so operating a distillery, the, the so-called juice can be great, but- there's a whole other set of things that have to happen around that product in order to ensure that like, ultimately that this business is quote unquote sustainable. Yes. Uh, and that's why also for us, uh, we, we've kind of dabbled with the discussion of direct to consumer shipping, but one of our legislative priorities will be to work with states in terms of making direct to consumer shipping a reality. A recent Sovo CCSA report, Harris Bowl, uh, statistically valid, has shown us that while the number was closer to 80% of consumers last year wanted direct consumer shipping, that's now jumped to 87%. Uh, 
with only eight states in the District of Columbia right now allowing for direct-to-consumer shipping, we have a lot of work to do. Um, so the good news is for ACSA, there's a valid reason for us to be involved in the industry for many, many years to come because we know that this will be a slow process. But uh, consumers demand, um, consumers vote, legislators come in and out of their Congresses, their general assemblies. Um, there's a lot of education for us to do because it, I feel like we're on the sense of reason on this. There's no valid reason why um, pharmaceuticals are shipped through the mail and you don't even sign for them. Um, I, I think that culturally, Alcohol, particularly spirits, has just a, a different cultural feel, some communities. So again, it's a matter of educating and providing the guidance. Uh, we see direct-to-consumer shipping, particularly for craft spirits, as a, um, as a distribution on-ramp. There's over 122,000 brands in this country we would not want a wholesaler to take a brand that has no traction. I mean, they have a business to run too, but we believe it could be a win-win for all concerned. And frankly, for retail stores too, because um, if they've got the brand, we'd rather them go to the retail store because they're going to get it that much sooner than waiting for something to be shipped for them. And I will say in general too, um, you know, this is, this is to be clear, this is me talking, not Margie, but I know a number of, managers and owners of establishments who are, one, sometimes they're less than pleased with some of their reps, but also some of their reps just have these massive catalogs. And so you get to the producer level and they're like, as I've heard somebody say before, it's like, listen, the truck is going out and Jack and Jim are on, you know, Jack Daniels and Jim Beam are on the truck. We can give you a spot, but like, does the rep even, it's lost inside their portfolio. So, um, it is the other direct angle of I have met bar managers and bar owners before like, oh, I didn't even know this product was in our market because no one has told me about it because these reps are just drowning in the amount of things they have available. Yes. It, it, it's a complicated dynamic and the way we, we look at it is let us help you let let us help you by having the but if you don't get it into the consumer's hand if it's not available on a retail shelf if it's not in the bar we can make we the manufacturers the best product available but how will consumers know about it whiskey clubs could be incredibly successful helps bring revenue back to the state brings additional federal excise taxes it, it really is a win-win for everyone well, I will be sure to link to some of that uh, legislation so people can read a little bit more about it. And yeah, like if you're ever looking for that time to call your congressman, that is certainly it. Uh, Margie, I feel like I could ask 8 million more questions, but I feel like this is a wonderful first pass. Um, we'll certainly link out to it, but where do people find ACSA online? Give us that whole spiel and we'll be sure to link out to all that stuff. Absolutely. Um, AmericanCraftSpirits.org is uh the place you definitely want to go to um we also are available on different social media channels um go to the website for all of them at this point um so i don't have to rattle those off but also uh one of the things i want to say about the craft spirits community um it is one of the most 
embracing and lovely group of people who just want to share what they're passionate about. So if there's anyone listening that has any questions, uh, no question is too small for us to answer. So come to anyone on the team. Also, if you're not currently subscribed, craftspiritsmag.com is a place, craftspiritsmagazine.com is a place you definitely need to go to for all current information on the craft spirits community. And we'll be sure to link to the magazine as well. Um, Perfect. Well, and then also, if you or anyone is interested in Step Up, if you're in hospitality and want to be a mentor, put in your application. It's rolling, although we won't be looking at um, 2025 at this point into next year. Send us your application, though, any time in the year. And similarly, if you are within the distilling community or happen to be a, a consumer of spirits and you're interested in perhaps having a career in distillation at any level, um, consider applying for the Step Up program. Wonderful. And uh, and good luck to you with selecting your uh, your next class. That sounds like a, a fun a fun job to have right there, although I'm sure there's plenty of competitive applications for it. So. Yes, indeed. Well, Chris, I really enjoyed speaking today. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktail. Mm-hmm.